I'd like to begin by telling you about two influential women in my life. Both of these women, influential indirectly, but influential all the same. They influenced me by being the moms to my two best friends growing up. My two best friends growing up were uh, Matt Hunley and Brian Woodbury. And uh, I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Not a, not a big city by any means. Grew up just outside of town. These guys lived kind of near me. And uh, we went to the same church. And so I got to know both of them. Actually, I didn't, Brian and I didn't go to the same church. I take that back. But um, Brian lived nearby, but I'll get into that in a second. So let me tell you about Matt's mom. Her name was Billy, Billy Hunley. There aren't a lot of women named Billy, but that was her name. And Billy was and is to this day one of the most kind of quiet, unassuming women that you would ever meet. Uh, Billy was married to Richard. And Richard was not a Christian. He had like a 60s style haircut the whole time that I, that I knew him. Uh, he kind of worked on cars. He, he was uh, uh, intimidating. Great big guy. I was afraid of him. I'd be, I'd be around their house. I'd just kind of like steer clear of Richard. Billy was quietly a very faithful Christian woman. Uh, she was the only spiritual influence that Matt and her brother, or his brother Jason had. She hauled them to church, hauled them to vacation Bible school, prayer warrior. In fact, uh, recently, Billy said to me, I pray for you every day. I'm 47 years old, and that's been true probably for, you know, 30 years plus. Prayer warrior, quiet, faithful Christian woman. Married to a man who had no spiritual interest whatsoever. Brian Woodbury goes down probably as my best friend growing up. Brian lived kind of around the corner in our little neighborhood that we, that we lived in. We were the same age, had a lot of the same interests. And from the age of about four or five, we were best friends and still are dear friends to this day. His mom, Linda, married to, a, uh, to, to Larry. Larry, not a Christian no spiritual interest, didn't mind the kids going to church, etc. I think maybe enjoyed being away, you know, having his own time on Sunday morning. And uh, so he didn't give him a lot of guff, but there was no spiritual like input from him in the home whatsoever. Everything that Brian and his two siblings got, he got from from Linda. And Linda similarly faithful in involved in church and faithful in the home, I, you know, praying with the kids and home devotions and things like that. Linda did all of it. Larry was a, uh, a kind of an intimidating guy. He was uh, more of an introvert. I also was afraid of him, honestly, in the home. We just sort of steered clear of him. Uh, he was a bowler, smoker, just kind of uh, a dude, no interest at all in spiritual things. Uh, definitely a family man, but none of the spiritual stuff at all. Everything that Brian knew about Jesus, he got from his mom. Between these two families, now five adult children, 
all five of them believers, all five of them serving in local churches, all five of them raising grandchildren in the faith. I say that to point out to you the incredible influence of a Christian woman in the home. My two best friends, dad, nothing, both of them come to faith, both of the, their siblings, all, all their siblings following Jesus. And, and you see now a generational impact that, the, that these two women's lives had. And you realize the powerful influence of these two women. Now, what about Richard and Larry? Today, both of them are dead. Both of them are in heaven. You say, wait a second. I thought you said they have no spiritual interest whatsoever. Absolutely true. All the years that I growing up was true. Both of them later in life after retirement professed faith in Jesus Christ, became involved in a local church, and when they died, they went to heaven. Now, to what do you attribute these two guys in the end believing in Jesus uh, with, with their heart and with their life. In both cases, you could point a few things, but it's primarily those two women in the home living out the Christianity in the way that they did led to both of these men, both of these husbands, being in heaven today. So what can we say about the incredible power of a Christian woman in a marriage? and a Christian mom in a home. It is literally a little bit of heaven on earth and is such a powerful witness in that marriage that often God uses that faithful woman to bring the husband to Christian faith. Certainly not always the case, but often is the case. And we're studying a letter called 1 Peter. We've been in it for months now. And this is where Peter gets to now in his letter. And we've been, we've been learning as he's writing to Christians who are in exile. And they are geographically in exile, but spiritually they're in exile as well. They're living in places where they are forced into human relationships that have conflict, spiritual conflict. People that do not agree with their Christianity, do not agree with the claims of Christianity, and are hostile against these people for being Christians. How are they to live? And we've seen already that in terms of being citizens and relating to government, that there's a way to live. And in uh, terms of being an employee with an employer that doesn't look up to your Christianity, there's a way to live. And in both cases, 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of of visitation. And what Peter is saying here is that the character of your lives will enhance and empower the claims that you are making regarding Christianity and is a powerful witness to the reality of a risen Savior. That even unbelievers, people hostile to Christianity, when they see your life, will say, there must be something to this thing. Because look at the way that That guy is living. Look at the way that that woman is living. We've also seen Peter call us to the example of Jesus when we do suffer unjustly, 
because of what people are doing and saying against us. And our natural response is to retaliate and is to be angry and to be bitter. But he puts out the example of Jesus in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And we saw that that word entrusting, it literally means to hand over something. What was Jesus doing as Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and the Roman Legion and Pilate and whoever that guy was that nailed him to the cross? What was Jesus doing with all of these unjust suffering moments? He was taking the offense of them and literally handing them over to his heavenly father. And he could do that because he knew that God would judge justly. He knew about heaven and hell. He knew what God and how God was going to handle all of this wrong that was being done against him. And it freed him then to be to do the counterintuitive thing to us, which is to love our enemies and to respond not with anger and violence, but with kindness and with patience. And we see that Jesus doing that. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He utters as he's hanging on the cross. Now, as a side note. I write an email to the church almost every week called First Bethelonians. And if you don't get it, let us know because we'd, we'd like you to get it. And I use it to sort of supplement things, update things on the church. This last week in my email, um, I included some resources because the natural question then is, well, wait a second, what if I have a legal recourse against this person? Or there's some other kind of complication. Do I just, is, is that the only thing to do? And there are more Bible verses than this one. And so if you didn't get that and you'd like it, let us know uh, because it handles some of these other complicating matters and it is complicated at times. Okay, so big picture. Peter says, if you're a citizen, there's a way to live within as a citizen in that government. Got it. Check. If you're an employee and your employer is 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 hostile to your Christianity, there's a there's a way that you are to live. Check. Got it. But what about a relationship that you're in that you can't get away from, right? Because if your boss doesn't like your Christianity, you go home at the end of the day and there's always the weekends. And uh, as a citizen, how much does that impact us? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But in marriage, that is a relationship that is every single day. You wake up next to that person. You live your life with that person. There is no getting away from that spiritual conflict when you are a person of faith and your spouse is not. What do you do then? And this is what Peter now addresses. And again, we're spending our whole month in on the subject of biblical marriage. Today, we're just looking at verses one and two. So listen as I read God's word advice for wives married to unbelievers. Here's what it says. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, notice in the text that the first word of chapter three is likewise. And what that means is that everything he's been saying about citizenship, Christian citizenship, Christian employment and Jesus It's still one thought. He's not changed what he's talking about. He's still talking about what about Christianity in exile? What about a wife now who is in this kind of relationship of spiritual opposition with her spouse, with her husband? And here's the reality on the ground, what Peter's addressing. 
Okay, we go back in the story. Jesus is resurrected somewhere, dies and resurrected about 30 A.D. After that, Pentecost. And we have, as the book of Acts tells us, the story of the spreading of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. Begins in Jerusalem, goes out into Samaria, and indeed to the uttermost parts of the earth. Led by the apostles, and then to the furthest reaches by the Apostle Paul himself. So, Paul is taking this message, he is planting churches, he is preaching all the way to Rome, indeed beyond Rome, the Christian message goes. Well, guess what happens? As that Christian message goes, there are some people that are believing it, and there are some people that are not. And there were some wives that were believing it and husbands who were not. Now, I could pause right now and say not a lot has changed. You know, if you were as a as a statistic, if you were to look at how many women versus men respond to the gospel. Women typically are spiritual first responders. And why could be a whole nother message. But I dare say there's probably hardly a church in the world where there are more men than women. And if we were to do a survey of this room right now, there are probably more women here than there are men here. Women, for whatever reason, a little bit more spiritual sensitivity, whatever it is, they respond to the gospel and they believe. And that's what happened in the first century. In these Greco-Roman Asia Minor cities, you have women who had worshipped at the temple of Zeus or Aphrodite or wherever, now believing in Jesus and realizing that pantheon of gods, those aren't gods, Jesus is Lord of all. But they're still married to a dude who doesn't believe that. Now they're wondering, what should I do? How do I live in this marriage when my husband either is indifferent or maybe uh, hostile to my Christian faith. Now, as a side note as well, he doesn't write to Christian husbands married to unbelieving wives, but the principle here, I think, applies. Now, I also want to note that these are women who are involuntarily married to unbelievers. And just to emphasize something, do not look at this passage as some kind of a biblical sanction, Christian, for marrying an unbeliever. You might look at that and say, oh, well, look, I mean, uh, missionary marriages are in the Bible. It's biblical. It's fine. The Bible is clear that for those that are followers of Jesus and are contemplating marriage, the only option in the will of God is another Christian. You say, where is that? One example, 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Okay? So far you're thinking that sounds good. Right? But notice the last clause. Only in the Lord. It is never the will of God for a Christian to marry an unbeliever. And I don't care how dashing he is, how rich he is, how like nice he is. He's okay with me going to church and all that. We're cool. We're cool. It's going to be fine. I tell you, it is not the will of God for you to marry that individual. So don't look at this as some kind of sanction for that. These are women who are already married and the gospel spreads into their town and they believe in Christ and their husband doesn't. What should they do? Realize something else. It was the custom of the day that a wife would worship whatever religion her husband believed in. Okay? His friends were her friends. His faith 
and religion was to be her faith and religion. A woman that did not go to the temple of Zeus or Aphrodite or whoever to worship with her husband was a woman in rebellion. That was a woman that was looked down upon. It was not at all culturally acceptable. So what should she do? Does she just go to the temple of Zeus and keep her mouth shut? Does she leave the marriage? How, what, what do I do, Peter? Please help me. And what Peter says here, uh, the Apostle Paul also affirms, and that is namely that that marriage now is the mission field for that wife. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The underlying concern for the apostles and the Holy Spirit who wrote this is the eternal state of that spouse. And now the opportunity for that spouse to have a living, breathing Christian every single day. He can't get away from her. (laughs) That just dawned on me. He can't get away from her and her Christianity all the time. She's living that out now with a purpose and a goal and a desire that eventually he would join her in this one saving faith and would know eternal life even as she does. So this is where Peter goes. Wives, see yourself, if you're married to an unbeliever, see yourself as a kind of gospel witness to your husband. Now you might be, if you're in this situation, you might say to yourself, but you know, I am very imperfect. Like, for me to think about being a missionary to my husband, knowing kind of my life, I don't think I qualify. Well, if you think you have to be perfect to be a missionary, you haven't spent much time with missionaries. Because guess what? They're just sinners like the rest of us. Guess what missionaries need every single day? They need the gospel. They need grace. If we had missionaries up here, they'd be amening what I'm talking about. They don't reach people because they're such wonderful people. They reach people because they're living out the one gospel that saves and that is observable by the culture that they are seeking to reach. So this is not a call to some kind of a fake perfectionism kind of a thing. Or as we talk about here, it's not perfection, it's direction, right? It's the general shape of my life. It's what I'm sort of prioritizing, what I'm living for. The overall orientation of my life ought to be observably towards the things of God in a way that my husband sees and realizes. So, how do Christian wives do this? Okay, How do they reach the hearts of their husband? Notice, first of all, where Peter goes. Verse 1. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands. I want to talk about the attractional beauty of a submissive spirit in a wife. The culture of that day, again, was that the wife was to submit to the religion of her husband. For a Christian wife not to worship in the way that her husband did was to indicate a wife that was not in submission to his leadership. And so Peter says, listen, you have got to, in your attitude, have a kind of affirmation of the leadership of your husband to willingly come under and accept it. And we're going to spend more time on God's blueprint for marriage 
And did you know God has a blueprint for marriage? In fact, who designed it in the first place, right? Marriage is God's idea. God gets to define it. God has a blueprint. We're going to be talking about it this entire month. But just to note here that in God's design for marriage, it is a husband who is the servant leader of his wife and a wife who is in a kind of, as Elizabeth Elliot defines it, glad surrender to her husband, a coming under his servant leadership. That's God's design. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now you might hear that and say, that sounds stupid. Or that doesn't sound right. And the reason that sounds that way to us now, chapter 3 in Genesis explains. Sin enters into the picture in chapter 3, and right away, the very first relationship besides God that is impacted is the marital one. Eve is not in subjection to Adam. Adam is not servant leading her. They're blaming each other. And ever since then, marriage has struggled to be redeemed back to the blueprint that God designed in the first place. So when you read the New Testament, anything it talks about in marriage, when it's talking about being redeemed by Jesus, being redeemed in Christian marriage, it is always summoning us back to the original blueprint that God had in mind in the first place. And that's what Peter is doing here, is he is calling Christian wives, even married to an unbeliever, back to the original blueprint that God had for a wife in the first place. Wayne Grudem defines it this way, submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. Now, Why does this work so well? Why is this attractional to a husband? Because even an unbelieving husband, when given the choice, delights and chooses in a wife that is like this. I mean, if you give an unbelieving husband has a choice, you can have on the one hand, a wife who is gentle, she is respectful towards you, she comes under your leadership, she is not less than you, but she comes under willingly, You can have this kind of a wife or you can have a combative, nagging, conflict-ridden wife. Choose. Now, I don't know a single guy, you know, I don't care what his religion is, that is going to choose the nagging, combative wife. But this kind of a wife, well, now that sounds, that sounds very interesting. There's an attractional beauty to a wife that is being a wife according to the blueprint that God designed. In fact, so powerful is this. Notice that Peter says that a wife can win her husband without words. Now, by that, he doesn't mean that the husband becomes a Christian without knowing anything about Jesus or the claims of Christianity. No doubt a Christian spouse would at some point, share the claims, share the gospel with her husband. It's not saying that. What it is saying is that the kind of life that a Christian woman is, by the Spirit, empowered to live is a kind of life that empowers and enhances the claims of Christianity that she is making. To win without words does not mean... You know, the the opposite of this would be the wife who's all the time trying to manipulate her husband to get saved. So, you know, there's tracks in his lunchbox every time he comes home. It's, you know, there's 
it's uh, you know Billy Graham on the on the radio in the house, and you know every night you go to bed, it's it's uh, you know uh, some moody radio message on repentance, you know. These kinds of ways that a conniving Christian kind of wife who thinks that she can win him by nagging him, it will actually repulse him from Christianity. He says, I don't want any part of this. Enough with your stuff. But a beautiful, submissive spirit in a wife seen up close by her husband garnishes her claims regarding Jesus. Secondly, it's the attractional beauty of a holy life. Look at verse 2. When they see, they being the unbelieving husband, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay? Respectful and pure conduct. This is the day-to-day challenge even for wives of mature Christian men. Right? So if you're here right now going, well, my husband's a Christian, so I don't have to worry about that respectful and pure stuff. No, this is what biblical wifedom, is that a word? I don't know. That's what it looks like. Respectful and pure. And I take this to be morally pure, and we see that submission has its limits, right? If a, if a husband asks you to do something that is out of the will of God, the Christian wife says no. Okay. So it is, not, it is not submission without constraint. But in all other categories, the Christian wife should be more about yes than no. For her to strive for her talk to be consistent with her walk. And again, no wife is going to do this perfectly. If you're here going, oh, I can't do that. I, I mean, I have to go home and I have to be the perfect wife. You're going to fail miserably. It is not perfection, it is direction. Observable direction of life that enhances and empowers the claims of Christianity. It's very powerful. Very powerful. Notice third, and I'm just going to note this. We're going to spend a whole message on verses 3 and 4. But notice the priority of the Christian woman with inward beauty. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Okay, and we're going to talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean. Come back. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Notice the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. What does godly, mature, Christian uh, wifedom, what does it look like? It looks like that. It is not going to be your hair. It is not going to be your shape. It is not going to be your looks that is going to draw your husband into a saving relationship with Jesus. In fact, to note, my two best friends that I mentioned to you at the beginning, both of those husbands came to faith after retirement. So in other words, this is not these women's prime physically. They are past their prime. It wasn't that beauty that drew them. It was the inward beauty. That imperishable feminine beauty. Combined with the Spirit's sanctifying work that drew their hearts to believe. 
And that inward beauty is sort of the, you know, I think for a man, the outward beauty is sort of like an instant kind of thing, a notice. The inward beauty is the, it's the drip, 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 drip over decades that slowly tears down the walls of disbelief. Feminine beauty is very, very powerful. And it ought to be, here he says, the first priority for the Christian wife. And these things include the beauty of character, beauty of love, beauty of kindness, the, 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 the sacrifice, the giving, words. All of these are, are grace that flows from a heart that is tasted of the grace of God, now directed towards the unbelieving spouse. In fact, I read a quote from R.C. Sproul this week. He said, whenever I feel like I am being treated unjustly, I remind myself that I am being loved unjustly. It is the love of God in the heart of the Christian wife tasting that grace undeserved that now has a reservoir of love and grace that can be extended to the unbelieving husband who does not have the marks of grace in his life, and that grace from her is also undeserved. But I've received it from God, and now I give it freely to others. That's how it works. And when that is going on, she's a better evangelist in the home than Billy Graham. Now this goes beyond the text, but I think a faithful application here on Mother's Day is to note about a Christian woman's powerful influence to her children. I'm calling these moms in exile. Okay, Moms in exile. Christian wives may or may not be married to Christian men, but every single mother is a mother to an unbelieving child, at least at first, right? That child does not come out of the womb singing Amazing Grace and quoting John 3.16. They come out of the womb, they don't know anything, but they come out of the womb wired for selfishness and sin don't they? Selfish. Thinking about themselves all the time. Like for me at 4 a.m. this morning, my wonderful, beautiful, lovely, love her so much daughter crying as a result of the fire alarm battery beeping. (laughs) Refusing to go back to sleep even though daddy has to preach today. So selfish. Here's where I think biblical Christian womanhood is so effective when it comes to that next generation because women, moms, spend typically exponentially more time with children than than dads do, right? That's why they say the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Only spiritually, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the heart. That mom is living day after day after day, hour after hour after hour, all the time in the car, all the time in these activities, all the conversations, all of those are opportunities for that Christian mom to influence that child, to live out her faith in a way that is attractional then for that child to believe maybe there is something to this because I see some reality in my mom. And to do that year after year after year over time, drip, 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 powerfully conveys the reality of the gospel to the child. These are things like prayer, 
and them seeing you pray. Bible reading and them seeing you read your Bible. Church involvement and them seeing you serve other people. This is conversations big and small. This is celebrating Christmas and Easter. All of these spiritually evangelistic for children. I wonder, is there any more effective way for children to be reached than for a faithful Christian mother in the home? I doubt it. In fact, if right now we said, okay, every Christian stand like we did earlier, every Christian stand. And how how many of you became Christians as a child? It would be a huge percentage of people here probably came to faith as a child. And if I said, who is the most spiritually influential person in your life? I'll bet over 50% would say it was my mother and her spiritual faith that God used in my life. So praise God for Christian moms and their reaching of their children. I encourage you moms to please keep it up. And I hold out to you, my two best friends growing up, no spiritual direction whatsoever from dad, nothing. They were already adults when their dads came to faith. How do you, what do you say about that? Who gets the credit? Mom gets the credit. Now, a few weeks ago, I told a story and I said, I'm going to tell the story again when I get to chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm going to be true to my word, okay? I told a story of an experience to me that of all the things I've experienced, lives out this passage better than, than all of them. And it goes back, this is years ago when I first came to the, to the church here. There was a senior citizen woman uh, that she just, you know, quiet, you would never notice her, small, petite, sat in the back of the church, uh, faithfully came week after week. I only ever saw her by herself and maybe kids if they were visiting from out of town. Well, one day I got a call from uh, the family and they said that this woman, I'll call her Jan, her husband was dying of emphysema and they wondered if I would go to the hospital and see him. And as I understand the story, the children were all Christians. Mom was Christian, dad was not. And dad was notoriously against Christianity and was kind of a hard-hearted guy, hard-charging businessman type, no interest at all in spiritual things. So they had prayed for him for years and years and years, and they wondered now he's about to die, would I go before he dies and have one more conversation with him about the gospel? Uh, Even though I had never met him. I said, okay, I'll do it. So I go to the hospital, and I remember I go walking up into the room, and uh, the room's somewhat dark. The guy's laying on the, on, the, on the bed. He's got tubes coming in and out everywhere. But he was cognizant. He was able to talk. On the other side of him is Jan. Now, quiet, holding his hand and rubbing his hand, kind of like this. Okay? So I walk into this scene, and I, uh, I sit down on a chair next to the guy. I've never met him in my whole life. So I commence with a little bit of small talk to break the ice. I say, well, hello, I'm Steve, I've been to the church, la, 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 chat, 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 like that. And uh, I'm just kind of into the small talk time when this guy very abruptly, and I would add rudely, says to me, he says, Pastor, if you got something to say, say it, because I got to pee. There was something about the way he said it. It actually, it kind of ticked me off. And I'm not holding this out as a model of pastoral care in the hospital in any way, but I'm going to tell you this is what happened, okay? I rose from my chair and I got in his face and I said, well, let me tell you something. I said, you're about to die. 
And without Jesus, you're going to hell. And I said, you've denied it your entire life, but you can't deny it in your wife. And there she is over there rubbing his hand like this, right? And as I was in his face, pointing my finger in his face like that, I could just see, you know, like the, the, the blood was rushing to his face. He was getting all mad like that. But the moment I said his wife, his face softened, and he turned his head, and he looked at his wife who was holding his hand, and he said, yep, you're right. She's one fine cookie. Think of what that woman did for decades married to this guy. The responsibilities of a Christian wife in the home, what it means to be a spouse to him in the kitchen, in the family room, and in the bedroom. That woman faithfully did it year after year after year. And literally, on this guy's deathbed, he could, he could not deny Christianity because he had seen it all those years lived out in his wife. And I wonder today, on this Mother's Day, I've, it's like my 18th Mother's Day here at, at the church. I kind of know how it goes, right? We got some moms here, sons and daughters that are going with mom because it's Mother's Day and mom asked you to come. We probably have some husbands here who you came, it's Mother's Day. That's kind of what you do. Can I ask you a question about that woman that's sitting either next to you or a few down from you? I mean, you maybe have had questions about this or that, or you had some experience in some church, and you're like, ah, I don't, I'm not into that. But I wonder if that woman, who even as I talk like this right now, may have tears coming down her face, who has prayed for you, has loved you, you have watched her live out her faith from the time you were a child. Her biggest desire is for you to know her Savior by faith and to experience eternal life with her. I wonder if on this Mother's Day, not my words, her testimony and her life, maybe your heart, like my two best friends' dads, might finally be opened through the love of your mother to the claims of Christianity and for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus just like she did years ago. Would that not be a great Mother's Day? I think that it would. And I just say that to you. Don't think about me and what I'm saying. Think about her. You may deny Christianity in general, but can you deny it in her life? Why not put your faith in her Savior and make Him your Savior today? His name is Jesus. As much as your mom loved you, He loved you more. He gave His life for you and He died on the cross bearing your guilt and shame. And after He was resurrected from the dead, He said, anybody that believes in Me, their sins will be forgiven and I will come into their life and I will bring transformation. And when they die... 
They will experience eternal life with me forever. That's the saving message of Christianity. It is offered to you on this Mother's Day. And may the example of your mother draw you to believe in her Savior. So wives and moms, may this Mother's Day renew your commitment to do exactly what Peter is describing here. To be a beautiful evangelist to your husband, to your children, to your community, and to live out your faith. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. May the Lord do this for His glory. Amen. Amen.